Good morning. And Merry Christmas. I got a better Merry Christmas than I got Good Morning. That's awesome. I'm going to start that every Sunday. Merry Christmas. Get a better response. <laughs> All right. I don't know about you, but maybe you are frazzled, you are overwhelmed, you are nervous, or you are dreading. Uh, or maybe you're just super happy. It depends on how old you are um, of what's coming up this week. Some of you are going to be having the best time of your lives um, at home, enjoying you know, Christmas time and what it means and uh, what, it, what you reflect on at that time, the things to be thankful for, the things that you look back and see God's faithfulness. Some of you will uh, be spending time with family um, if you cross that threshold and your family's cool with that. And so you're going to be spending some time with family and you're going to be looking forward to that. Maybe you're traveling, maybe you're not. Um, some of you may not be looking forward to time with a family, and I don't mean that in a humorous way. I mean it like that really is a difficult time when we um, come together sometimes with our less than perfect families, and sometimes there's things that we avoid all year long that we have to face, and that's why this time of year can be kind of a really dark time as well because uh, it, it overwhelms us to a degree. It reminds us of a lot of things that are, are still wrong in the world and maybe even still wrong in our lives, but the beauty of it is if we remember what the season is all about, there's hope no matter what the situation is. Because the whole message of the season is that God knew that there was something messed up. God knew that there needed to be healing, that there needed to be restoration. Not first and foremost our family members, but between us and God. And so this season is about reflecting on the fact that God knew and God took action to take care of what our greatest need was. And that wasn't money or toys or anything like that, it was our sin problem. And so God sent us a Savior, and that's what we reflect on. And so it's been a good time to go through the Advent, and it's been a good time to come together, especially here at the Gospel of John. Uh, I think it's kind of a beautiful time that and only God could orchestrate this, that we are studying the crucifixion at the time that we also come to study or reflect on the birth of Jesus, because those two are so hand in hand, and sometimes we can kind of separate them from one another, but the whole purpose of sending the son was so that he would die, so that he would be the sacrifice, so he would be the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It was a fulfillment of those things. And so, again, these two things are so connected. So today, we are continuing in the Gospel of John. You would think maybe we would take a week off and um, go, well, let's, you know, do a great uh, Christmas message. But that's what Christmas Eve service is all about, so we're going to do that. But oddly enough, the verses that we're going to look at today do reflect on kind of one of the themes of this season that you see over and over again. If you have your copy of Scripture, I just want to read for you um, the next couple of verses. And that's all we're looking at today is two verses because these are the two verses, if you've been a part of this study of the Gospel of John, um, these are two verses that we have pointed you towards and drawn your eyes to over and over and over again throughout our study. And these are the verses where John tells us why he took the time to write this book. Look at what it says in verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the interesting thing uh, about the season that we live in 
is that all that you see in the movies and a lot of times in the shopping malls and on TV is to get you to believe, but it's not really the focus of what the season's about. It's to get you to focus on something else. And you'll see people that say, I believe or believe, but they're not talking about Jesus. They're talking about something else. And the, the thing is, I think that that's so tragic that we can take our eyes and, and, and focus off of what the main thing is about, what the scripture keeps calling us to and what the gospel presents as the most important thing and the crux of all of human history. So when we come to this couple of verses here in the gospel of John, understand one thing, that he is saying to us that his purpose in writing is so that you can believe. Now, that's what we want to focus in on this morning. What does it mean to believe? And what does John mean by the things that he writes here? For, for um, you know, just a good reflection on what commentators say and theologians say, a lot of them reflect and say this is actually the end of John's gospel. Um, this is the functional end of it. As he finishes out the presentation before Thomas and Jesus saying, touch my wounds, here I am, and then the declaration, my, my Lord and my God... And then it comes to these last couple of verses, and John says, hey, I, I wrote these things so that you can believe. So why chapter 21? Was it written later? Was it added on after John was like, well, I, maybe there's a couple other things I should have said. Now, um, as we reflected on it as pastors and teachers, one of the things that Kyle mentioned that I thought was a really good illustration was, it's kind of like when you are at the end of a movie, and the movie's over, but the credits start coming up. And how many of you are the really smart ones that you're like, oh, no, no, don't leave yet because something's going to come on at the end of the credits, right? It's either the Star Wars movie or another one. And, and they always tease you with a little bit of what might be coming next. So you see the movie and you see how it ends and then all of a sudden the credits come and at the end of it, it gives us one little snippet and it leaves you hanging of like, oh, there's going to be another one or oh, there's going to be a sequel to this or oh, what's going to happen with this person? And so there's always something that happens that leaves it open for them to come back with a sequel. Well, it's kind of like what John is doing here. He is functionally ending the gospel here by saying, this is why I've written all of these things. But then if you look at chapter 21, he's going to continue and he's going to say, but there's more to this. It didn't end here with Jesus just rising from the dead and appearing. Because if you go on, you'll see that he appears to the seven disciples. He reinstates Peter and he sends him out. He sends them out with this beautiful message to the world. Of course, that's setting you up for the book of Acts where that is the beginning of the church and how the church goes out. And this thing catches on like wildfire and all the things that Jesus said and prophesied about and said we're going to be true, become true. And we see the giving of the Holy Spirit and how powerful that becomes in the movement of the early church. So chapter 21 is kind of like a postscript to everything that John has talked about thus far in his gospel. So verses 30 and 31 do function as a conclusion, but not really a conclusion so much as this is just the end of the book, but it's more of a this is what you need to reflect on. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to understand. So John, as he writes this, um, I don't believe that he's done this in one process. In other words, John didn't sit down and go, you know what? Those other three Gospels just didn't cut it. I need to add another one. I just need to sit down and, and just sat down one day and wrote this out. You got to think John was the last one to write his Gospel. John spent so much time 
going to churches and sharing about his eyewitness accounts. So when you come to the Gospel of John, what you're talking about is a teacher. It's almost like a professor who has taught for many, many years. In this, in this case, maybe he's teaching in synagogues or he's teaching in homes where the church is meeting. He goes to different places and they all say, tell us what you know or tell us these things. And then all of a sudden what happens is over time, John finds that he keeps saying these same things over and over again. That the things that draw people's attention, the thing that the Spirit uses most powerfully are these certain stories. And, and the Spirit begins to teach him and refine his perspective. And so after this long period of God dealing with him and working with him, he comes down to the point where he says, these are the crucial things that everybody needs to know. And that's why at the end of his gospel, he's telling us, listen, um, this isn't everything that Jesus did. This isn't all the miraculous things that he did. This isn't all the wonderful things that he said. But these are the things that you need to know. And I write these things because I want you to believe. And having believed, you receive eternal life. That's my purpose in writing. So he has that one purpose. That's why he sat down, motivated by the Spirit of God, influenced by the Spirit of God to write this gospel. We all need to understand where this falls in the process of the gospel of John as well. These two verses fall right after a whole bunch of things have still gone wrong, even after Jesus told them everything that was going to happen. Remember, in the last few chapters, what we've seen, first of all, is we've seen one guy who comes in and he becomes a defector in Judas. Then the next thing the gospel paints for us is the denier, Peter. And then the last thing it gives to us is the doubter, Thomas. These are guys that follow Jesus. They heard him say over and over again, I have come, I'm going to have to die. I'm the lamb that was slain. He's used all those metaphors. He's used all those teachings. And none of them got it. They all missed it. They didn't see him as the true Lord of heaven. They didn't understand him fully as God. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the gospel, the guy makes the declaration, my Lord and my God. What is he painting a picture of but through this whole process of teaching and walking with them and then dying for them and then rising from the dead and then reappearing to them that there's a purpose in all of that and the whole purpose was so that they would believe. And in believing, they understand who he is and in understanding who he is, they receive eternal life. Like we talked about last week, this was radical transformation for Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, I call him Believing Thomas. That's my choice, I can call him what I want. But I call him Believing Thomas because I don't want to be remembered for the mistakes I made. I want to be remembered for what God does with me towards the end. You know what I'm saying? I think it's a bad rap. How would you like to be called whatever the worst thing you've done is for the rest of your life and be known for that for generation to generation? One time, you get this thing wrong. You had some doubts. Yeah, now you get labeled Doubting Thomas. And matter of fact, if you go to the dictionary or the thesaurus and you look up any word that would be like um, someone who's a defector or someone who um, is, uh, what was the word I was looking at? I can't remember exactly what it was, but actually Doubting Thomas is a synonym of those words. <laughs> doubting Thomas is in the thesaurus. I was like, that is so wrong. I believe he is believing Thomas because that's the way his story ends. Matter of fact, we talked about it last week. What happens to this guy? I mean, he is the one in the beginning who has the greatest doubts maybe. 
But he's also the disciple who takes the gospel further than any other disciple, taking it all the way to India and losing his life and dying in India after starting churches there and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this guy may have doubted at some point in his life, but he believed, and that believing radically changed him. So John brings it to this point and says, if God can change this doubter to this great evangelist, to this great missionary, just think what God could do with you you if you believe. How are you going to believe? You have to hear and know these signs. I'm writing these things so that you may believe. But it's not just believe like I believe in Jesus. So in believing, you receive eternal life. So so there is this transaction that John is talking about. It's not just this mental assent to who Jesus is. It's not just believing, yeah, I believe there was somebody 2,000 years ago, and I believe that that person was God, and he came from heaven to earth, and I believe that he died on the cross. You can believe all of those things in your mind, but if there's not transformation in your heart, that's not the receiving of eternal life. That's just some kind of confession that never has a transformation that follows it. You see, a true confession means that I believe this to the depths of who I am. And if I believe this to the depths of who I am, then that means there's nothing that I'm going to hold back from this. I'm giving my life to this. Now, how many of you like to watch documentaries on TV? Anybody like that? Yes. That, that's like, I don't like watching a whole lot of TV shows. I don't watch TV shows. I hate... Um, I, I know I'm probably offending a lot of people. That's like I hate shows like The Masked Singer and American Idol and all of those things. I just ugh, I'm like ugh. I just don't. I don't like to watch that. My family likes to watch it sometimes, and they'll watch it. I'll say those are the ugliest costumes I've ever seen in my life. Those are those are just disgusting. I don't know how people sing in those. But anyway, that's a side. That was a whole sermon for another day. Documentaries, though, the reason I like them is because. They're, they're a window into a story that you didn't know anything about. Like, you may have known the story, like you knew some things, but you didn't know what was happening behind the scenes. And there's been some really great documentaries that have come out. If you're uh, into basketball, one of the greatest documentaries that's come out lately, and probably one of the greatest ever, is what? The Dance, yeah. The story about Michael Jordan. Um, it gets into his life and what happened. In this, and they tell all these stories that happen in the background. I also remember seeing one about Larry Bird uh, that I loved. I was a, I'm a basketball fan, played basketball my whole life. And, and one thing I loved about Larry Bird was they would tell you the things he was saying to people on the court that was just hilarious. Like one time they were behind, I think, by two points. And there was like three seconds left on the clock. And they called a timeout. And they all went in there. And then after the timeout was over, Larry Bird went to the other team. I can't remember who it was who had been guarding him all day. And he said, hey, uh, they're going to throw it to me, and I'm going to shoot it from right over there, and we're going to win this game. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. He came over, he grabbed the ball, he shot it, he won, he walked off. And he would just do those kinds of things just to egg people and poke people. But it's just great stories that you hear like that. There's been some great documentaries like jazz, baseball, um, if you like ESPN, you've watched 30 for 30. Uh, if you're like Joe, one of the greatest ones that's come out is Tiger King. That's one of his favorite ones. He loves watching that. And Neil's favorite is The X-Files, which I've tried to tell him that that's not a documentary. But anyway, no. probably one of the greatest guys who um, lays out documentaries, does the best job at them, is a guy by the name of Ken Burns. 
Y'all know, you know who I'm talking about? He's the one that did jazz and baseball. And I, I saw this interview with him, and I want to give you some quotes of things that he said. Because he was comparing himself to Steven Spielberg, and the person talking to him was like, well, how is what you do different than what Steven Spielberg does? And he says this, he says, I am friends with Steven Spielberg. The laws of storytelling are the same for both of us. But I often say to him, you make stuff up. I can't. There's as much drama in what is and what was as there is in anything the human imagination can come up with. And so what he's saying is, you know what, yeah, we have two different kinds of genres that we deal with, but we do much the same thing. The only difference is he can make stuff up and I can't. But you know what, I'm okay with that because I find that in the human course of life, in the drama of just human history and life itself, there's enough there that you don't have to add anything to it if you get down and drill down and find the truth of the story. He goes on and he says this. He says, when somebody tells me what I left out of jazz or baseball, well, the reason is I'm not an encyclopedia. I do not wish for this to be a list of every World Series, every secondary jazz session player. Telling a story is editing. When your wife says, honey, how was your day? You don't start with, I backed up slowly down the driveway, avoiding the garbage can at the curb. No, you, you cut to the chase, you tell stories, you edit. That's what humans do. So in other words, what he's saying is part of what he does is he takes a story and he edits it down to the most important part, the things that you need to know, the things that you're going to hang on the edge with, the things that really tell the story. So part of human history is editing. We all edit. Whenever someone asks you, what did you do today? You edit, okay? We don't want to know everything. Some of those things are just gross. We just want to know the main things. And we all understand that about each other when we share stories and experiences. And so that's part of what John is doing here. He's saying to you, I haven't told you everything. I haven't given you all the details. I've given you what you need and that you need it to believe and to believe to have eternal life. That's the purpose in writing. I'm telling a story, and everything that I'm telling you is intentional. It's purposeful. Look what he says again in verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, wouldn't you like to know what some of those are? I would love to have an appendix in the Bible where it's just like Appendix A, what Jesus did in Judea that we weren't able to include. Appendix B, you know, Appendix C. And just go through and just have us have some of those details. I mean, I would love to know what some of these other things are. But John's going to tell us again at the end of chapter 21, hey, if I were to write all these things down, all the books in the world couldn't contain the things that he taught and said and did. So he's being intentional. And the reason he's being intentional is he's saying, I'm telling you a story that goes back beyond just the story that I'm telling you. In other words, whenever John says, these are the signs that Jesus gave. Matter of fact, when he was in the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and remember they ran out of wine, and he says, hey, go fill the water pots with water. And he comes back and he turns the water into wine. John tells us this is the first of the signs so, so John is telling this story and he's saying that somehow there are these signs that Jesus was giving us by the things that he was doing and the things he was saying that tells a story that's bigger than life. And what John is talking about is there is these Old Testament prophecies, uh, whether it's in the book of Psalms or whether it's the true prophets 
writing about Israel and, and the debacle that they find themselves in and how God somehow in the future is going to rescue them with a redeemer, with this suffering servant, with this reigning king, with this priest from the line of Melchizedek, whatever it may be, there's all of these allusions in the Old Testament that keep pointing forward to something. And what John has done is he said, I've gone back and told you what you need to know to understand that he has fulfilled those things. That he is the son of God. That he is worthy of your faith. That he is worthy of your trust. The Old Testament people of God, they came to anticipate that there was going to be this person who was anointed by the Spirit of God, who was going to come onto the scene, who was somehow going to function as king and priest. And so what John does is over and over again, he shows you how Jesus functions as king and priest and king and priest. He uses the words or the word signs there. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment because we think of signs, we think of um, miracles, but, you know, there's, there's really a, a rudimentary way of thinking about signs. We have signs all over the place, don't we? We obey signs constantly. And what do signs do? What is the function of a sign? A sign is something that points you in a certain direction, isn't it? Or it calls you to do something. There's a stop sign it alerts you to what's in front of you, but it's also calling you to an action because of the sign that's there. The yield sign is different than the stop sign. Some of you need to learn that. There's a difference in those two, okay? Yield means, hey, if you pull up there and there's nobody around, just keep on going. You don't have to come to a complete stop. Keep it moving. Let's keep going here, okay? So the yield sign tells you something different, and it's letting you know what the rules are for that area of the road, and it's letting you also, it's calling you to action. It's calling you to do something because of it. Isn't it right? The signs that say, no U-turn. Okay? It's letting you know what you can't do in a certain area. So there are all of these signs, and one of the worst signs I can tell you about is in Mobile, Alabama. And if you have ever been to Mars Hill on downtown or Boulevard, how many of y'all have ever been to the other campus? few of you have. Okay, if you ever come out of our campus and you turn right onto downtowner and you come to the end of that road, or if you come down Mont Lamar, which is the one road over, and you come to the end of that, there is this big sign that hangs by the light that says, don't be delayed. If you're turning right onto Airport Boulevard, go ahead and take the side road. Don't wait for this light to turn green. Okay, that's my explanation. But that's what it says in big letters. Guess what everybody does when they get up there? They sit and wait for that light to turn green. And there's honking because everybody who ever uses that road all day long knows you're wasting our time. You're sitting here waiting. It takes 10 minutes for this thing to turn green again. All you got to do is get on this little side road. There's a little yield sign and you can jump right onto Airport Boulevard. It's that easy. No, no. I'm going to ignore that sign. And I'm going to wait for the green light. No, and those people just frustrate us. But what happens is we ignore the things that are right in front of us. How can you miss that? It's hanging right next to the sign that you're looking at or the light that you're looking at. And that's in essence what John is saying. He's saying, look at these signs that Jesus performed. And so many of us, what we do is we walk up and we see what he's doing. And we go, wow, isn't that amazing that Jesus did that? But you're ignoring the sign. The sign's right there saying, if you believe that he did this, this is calling you to action. 
they're, they're, it demands a response. And you've got to respond to that. And that response is to believe. Not just to believe that he did it, but to believe that if he did it, he must be who he says he is. There's even signs at Jesus' birth, weren't there? What were the signs at Jesus' birth? You remember some of them? This is a small enough group. We can call them out. Come on. Somebody just tell me what one. What was it? A star. Somebody got an A. A star. Yes, there's a star. Jesus. What was another sign? Angels showed up in the middle of nowhere, and they were like, hey, Jesus has been born and so over and over again, there are these signs from the very beginning of Jesus' life, from the entire ministry of Jesus' life, at the very end of Jesus' life. Over and over and over again, there are these signs. And the wise men are the ones who saw the signs, and they knew it did what? Demanded a response. And so they went, and they sought, and they found. In essence, this is what John is saying at the end of his gospel. He's saying, you've seen these signs, now what are you going to do with it? Are you going to follow through with it? Are you going to believe? Are you going to listen to what these signs are demanding of you? C.S. Lewis was famous for, and people kind of summarize it. They say that Jesus is either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. But I don't know if many of you have ever heard the actual quote from C.S. Lewis where that comes from and he says this I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him talking about Jesus I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept accept his claim to God he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who just says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him my Lord and my God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. What is C.S. Lewis talking about? He's talking about the very things that John's talking about. He said, Jesus did these things and he said these things. He said, I'm God. There was a time when he looked at the religious leaders and said, I and the Father are one. This is crazy. This is lunacy if he's not actually God. They Literally, it says in the Gospel of John that they picked up stones ready to throw them at him and stone him. Why? Because they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. Now, here's the thing. You've got to understand that these Gospel writers, John in particular, John is a Jew. He grew up with a monotheistic view. There's only one God. And he grew up with this understanding that there is no man who is God. Man cannot be God. That's what he grew up with. That was what was put into his head. And so at the end of his gospel, what he's saying is this. I have seen and I have heard things that have convinced me this man is God in the flesh. That's why after teaching this and living this for many, many years, he starts out his gospel saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
He doesn't want you to misunderstand him from the very beginning. That's what I'm going to give to you in this gospel. That's what I'm, that's the thesis statement I'm putting out there from the very beginning. I'm writing all of this to convince you that this word that has become flesh is God himself. Sign number one. And then he continues on through his whole gospel. Ken Burns, the same guy who does a lot of the um, documentaries, uh, in that same interview, they said, what do you try to accomplish when you develop a, a story? What, what do you do when you sit down and think about the documentary that you're going to present to people? What's in your mind? And he talks a little bit about coming from the perspective of, of who the person is and the story that he's telling from the person that he's talking about. But there's one statement that he says that kind of jumped out at me. He said this. He said, my job is to wake the dead. Wow. My job in telling a documentary is to wake the dead. It's to liven people up. And and I think of what he means by this. He didn't say this. This is my take on it. I think what he says is a lot of times what we get through the TV just numbs us and kills us. And it just kind of makes us stale and it makes us flat. And he said, I want to put something together that captivates, that inspires that encourages them to get up off of whatever it is they're sitting on watching this and to go do something because you know what? This story can be your story. This was just a human being. And I think in a similar way, John is saying that at the end of his gospel. Now, he's not saying you can go up and be God, you can go up and be Jesus, you can go die for the sins of the world. No, but what he's saying is that if what Jesus said is true and you believe it, it demands a response. There's something that has to change about who you are, how you live, what you value. John is saying, I'm writing to wake the dead. I'm writing to give them life. I want them to believe what I believe. I want them to know what I know. And I want them to experience the life giving transformation that I've experienced from believing these things. You know, if you really paid attention as we studied through the Gospel of John, you saw this clearly. Because over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, he keeps highlighting Jesus' call to life. Let me just give you a few of them. Chapter 1, verse 4. In him was, this is where y'all participate, in him was And that was the light of men. Uh, Verse uh, verse 36 of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see. But the wrath of God remains in him. John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of... Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have and have it abundantly. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the... Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 17.3, and this is eternal That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, the question I want you to leave here today that I think you can reflect on with your family group, whether that's 
somebody that's a good friend of yours or your immediate family or whatever it may be, is this. What, or I guess a better way of saying this, is where are you looking for life? Where are you looking for life? Because, you know, some people are looking they're looking to all different kinds of places for life. Some people are looking to doctors and medicine for life. Um, some people are looking to politics for life. And those are really dumb ones. No, but I mean, I, I say that jokingly because I am one of the dumb ones because I can get caught up in that so easily. I don't know if you're like that. But all I got to do is turn on that news channel. And, and I sit there and sometimes I just wanted this background noise. And then all of a sudden I'm just like going, yeah, yeah, that's right. They we got to do something about this. This is terrible. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm lost in whatever I was doing. I was just going background noise. Now, what I was doing is the background, and now I'm all captivated. Because they keep telling us that over and over again. This is the most important thing. This is the most important election of the most important thing that's ever been ever. I mean, every time something happens, it's the most important thing. Why do they keep telling us? Because they want us to keep watching us. Because they fill us with nothing. They never fill us with answers. They never fill us with direction. They never call us to any action. They just keep telling us what's wrong and why you should be mad or be happy, whatever it may be. Do you see what I'm talking about? And so easily it is for us to be drawn and captivated by things that don't give life. They actually call us our attention, our allegiance, but they never give us life. Sometimes it's, it's, it's health in our bodies. I mean, have you ever known people who they find their life in, man, working out, and taking supplements or, you know, going to the doctor and, 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 and it's medicine and it's health and it's so, some kind of physical regimen. And, and there's nothing wrong. Those things are great. Those are awesome. I mean, they're, they're running is a, a very healthy thing. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a run. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. It just depends on where you are in life, Right? But here's the thing, you know the difference between trying to find your life in it and doing it for the benefit that it gives to you. When we talk about finding life, it means our identity, our value, our source of being. It's why we get up every day. It's how we see ourselves. In other words, is there anything that I could take from you Right now, besides your salvation and your relationship with Jesus, that if you walked out of here, you would be despondent because you don't have it anymore. I didn't say depressed or discouraged because, yeah, if we, there's some things that we lose that we might get discouraged over. But immediately what we need to realize is if I have Jesus, I have all that I need. Maybe I don't have any money. Maybe I don't have good looks. Maybe I don't have the health that other people do. But if I have Jesus, I have all that I need. And what happens is that relationship with Jesus puts all those other things in the right perspective. We can still go work out. We, we can still pursue those things. We can still have money. We can even be wealthy. But those things don't have us. The only thing that captivates us is our relationship with Jesus. What are you looking for to give you life? C.S. Lewis once said this, he said, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. It's a megaphone to rouse the deaf world. I heard John Piper say this one time. I don't know that he's the originator of this or not, but he's the one that I heard it from. He said this, it is a thousand sorrows that teaches a man to preach. And that's true. It is the sorrows, it's the difficulty that we walk through 
that teaches us to appreciate life. You know, you, you, I'm going to tell you something. As someone who's lost his mom, lost my mom four years ago, it's not until your mom is gone that you realize how precious she is. I mean, I know that when I lost my mom, the only thing I could think of for the next month or two months was, I have lost the greatest prayer warrior that I've ever had. I, I know that lady prayed for me every single day, probably many times a day. She prayed enemies away, and she prayed blessings on me, and she prayed protection around me. She did that over and over and over again. And, and I know what it feels like. And, and, and the thing is, what we have to understand about the difficulties that we walk through is God is shaping us, and God is showing us something. It is in the difficulty of the crucifixion that they begin to really appreciate the resurrection. You know, Jesus is alive in the resurrection, and he was alive before, but it was a different kind of appreciation of life. Why? Because they just walked through a really dark time. And that's the motivation that gave them to leave everything and go to India or go to Spain or go wherever it is in the world that they felt called to take this gospel message. Let me ask you something. What do you believe? How have you been transformed and what action has it called you to? Look at verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've written these things to prove to you that everything in the Old Testament that God said he was sending a Savior is coming true. All the way back in creation. And we've seen all the allusions back to creation over and over again. And really, even, even here in, in these, there's, there's that allusion back to creation. Uh, these last couple of verses here. Um, this life that they lost in the garden that God said, through the seed of a woman, one will come who will restore this life. How will he restore this life? He will take the full venom of the serpent. And after taking the full venom, then he will crush the head of that serpent. That was the first picture that we had. And then that picture was reiterated and redefined and illustrated so many different times until Jesus shows up on the scene. And despite all of those signs, no one saw it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. A few people appreciated it. The wise men went seeking it. John believes when he sees in the tomb the, the head cloth folded off to the side. Whatever it may be, there are a few like moments of, of brilliance, but there are very few because most of it is dark. They missed it despite all the evidence. And the failure that we could have is that we've spent two years in this gospel. And here's my question to you. Is your life any more rich today than it was when you started studying this gospel? Now, I know that you could sit there and think, and I could sit there and think, well, I knew Jesus before we started studying this gospel. But listen, you didn't know him the way that all of this keeps pointing to him, verse after verse after verse. And here's my question. What are you going to do with this now? As we come to the end of this gospel, my question to you is, how has these, story, these stories that have been told by John that we have preached on and taught and discussed, how has it changed you? How have you been transformed? Or have you been able to just sit back almost like with a remote and hit mute when you don't want to hear it and turn the volume up when you do? 
Have you taken the full brunt of the gospel and let it just destroy your soul so that it can be rebuilt again? I want you to hear again what he says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Lord, we've had the privilege of taking two years, two years of Sundays, and slowly and methodically, walking through this rich gospel. This message that you put on the heart of John as an eyewitness, this one who would never in his wildest dreams ever thought that he would look at a human being and say, that person is God, and yet what he saw so convinced him that he said, he is God and he is able to give life. I want you to believe it. Lord, what will you have us do with the privilege that you've given to us to be able to learn, to experience, and to see these signs. Lord, to understand that these signs call us to an action. Lord, what is the action? Lord, make it clear to us. I know you're calling us into a deeper relationship with you, a deeper understanding, but it's not just this mental thing. It's this this emotional thing. It's this action. It's this transformation of our heart, of our mind, of our value system of how we see things and how we hold things and how we value things. Lord, I pray that, that, that the teaching of your word would not return void as your word promises it won't, but Lord, that it would ricochet off the walls of our stone hearts and cause fractures in the hardness that has transpired because of us listening to the sirens of this world. And Lord, may we turn a deaf ear to everything that this world keeps telling us we need to look to to find life and to find health. And Lord, may we look to where the signs are pointing. That's back at you. The simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of knowing you, believing you, and embracing the life that is ours in Christ Jesus. So God, I pray that you would make these things real in my heart. I pray that as this season unfolds this week and we spend time with family and we sing songs and we reflect on things and we exchange gifts and we go through all the things that we do year from year, but Lord, somehow this will be a little bit different, a little different perspective simply because we have spent time in your gospel, allowing our hearts to be challenged, washed, renewed. Somehow the things that we do this year will be unlike we've ever done them before. There will be a new song in our heart fresh encouraging word on our lips a warning in our mind that we are heeding and may we see things the way you see them and may we be able to respond we ask this in the name that's above every name jesus christ our lord amen